Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Monday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, one and all, if that is something you celebrate. If not, Happy Tuesday, everyone. (laughs) We thank you so much for tuning in. Got some great stuff for you this week. We've been hard at work, busy, busy. Encourage you to check out one of our recent episodes where we try to keep you up to date on everything going on with the legislative session. And we are in crunch time as the session ends this Thursday at noon. And also want to encourage you to subscribe to our companion podcast with KUNM Radio. It's called Your New Mexico Government. And we bring you regular updates on everything going on in the Roundhouse. So you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. All right, jumping in today, we recently were able to catch up with 1st Congressional District Representative Melanie Stansberry here in her first term in Congress. She has a long history in water planning and water issues dating back to her time in the state legislature and working on Capitol Hill. And she has taken that banner with her in her role as the CD1 representative, including sponsoring a recent bill around water access for tribes and pueblos here in New Mexico. So she recently uh, caught up with Laura Paskus, our environment reporter, to talk about her work in Washington, D.C., and also why it's such a struggle for those environmental issues seemingly to get traction with lawmakers, especially in an election year like this one. Representative Stansberry, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you. So in December, you introduced the Water Smart Access for Tribes Act. Um, If this were passed, what would it mean for New Mexico's tribes? So the reason why we introduced this bill is that there's so many programs out there that help to support our communities in building out water infrastructure, water conservation projects, and things like that. But one of the major barriers is that they often require a federal cost share. So the community actually has to bring money to the table as well. And what we found is that over history, especially with this program, many of our tribal communities have really found that as a barrier to access. And so this bill would help to waive that cost share so that more of our tribal communities can access those grant programs. And are these um, grants for water quality or water quantity or both? These are mostly programs through the Bureau of Reclamation's Water Smart Program. And so that program helps to support, especially water conservation initiatives for um, addressing water infrastructure needs, reducing water use, things like that. So um, these would be grants for whatever kind of program a tribal community would wanna undertake to help improve water management locally within a tribal community. Two other bills to mention, the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Acts. What could those mean for New Mexico's water infrastructure? Well, the biggest single thing that's happened in water at the federal level over the last year is the passing of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which happened in November, in which I was proud to support and vote in favor of. And that bill it makes a $1.2 trillion investment in American infrastructure, including billions and billions of dollars of investments in drinking water and Western water infrastructure. And so that bill passed, it was signed into law. Our president is currently working with our agency to administer those programs. And our state has actually set up also a process by which to get those dollars on the ground. So we anticipate that 
because of that bill, New Mexico is going to see about $350 million in formula funding for drinking water projects, as well as possibly millions and millions of dollars for all kinds of drought and other uh, water resilience projects. So um, we're working hard with the state. And as you know, our governor has appointed Mike Hammond to help support uh, getting those dollars on the ground. And uh, we're working very closely with our communities to inventory what kinds of projects need funding. And I'll tell you, uh, about a week and a half ago, I joined the governor and other members of the delegation and mayors and local officials from across the state. And water and broadband really are the two top most critical infrastructure issues for our state right now. And so we know that those infrastructure dollars are going to be spent well. But the Build Back Better Act is still in front of Congress. As many of your viewers have been following, we passed it in the House in November, but it still remains to be passed in the Senate. And right now they're back at the negotiating table trying to figure out a path forward for that bill. But what's important about the Build Back Better Act is that it also includes billions of dollars for drought and climate resilience projects, especially focused on water. And in particular, I think this is important for New Mexico with so many of our rural and tribal communities is we have hundreds of communities in New Mexico that really need investments in drinking and wastewater systems. And so uh, the Build Back Better Act includes a tremendous amount of funding also for those really important um, local community water systems and resilience projects as well. So in talking about investments in infrastructure and New Mexico, you know, our audience is familiar with climate change and water challenges. I think sometimes when we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about infrastructure that was built in the early to mid 20th century that are meeting most of our challenges, but maybe not meeting our challenges into the future. What kinds of investments and changes in infrastructure might we be thinking about and looking forward to that kind of meet the challenges that are coming? Yeah, so I think, you know, as we say here in New Mexico, water is life. We know that water is at the heart of our communities and we have ancient water systems across our state. Our indigenous communities have built amazing water infrastructure and practices that continue to this day. Our acequias are still a vital part of our culture and our way of managing water in the state. And among our traditional systems and our historic systems, we're starting to see a lot of changes because of climate change. We're seeing a reduction in snowpack, more intense storms, changes in how water is coming. And in order to adapt to those changes, we're going to have to really change the way we manage water as well as upgrade our infrastructure so that it can respond to more extreme events and changes in our snowpack. So that's one, one aspect of it. Secondly, and I think you touched on this a little bit with your comments, is a lot of the infrastructure that was built in the 19th and 20th century is coming to the end of its design life. And I like to think about this in terms of similar to our electric grid. We built it at a certain time, it served its purpose, and now it's kind of coming to the end of its life. And as we're thinking about the impacts of climate change and drought and our new needs around water and water security, we are going to really need infrastructure that can be managed in real time, that uses the best science and technology and data to do so, and that is integrated with our traditional systems and restores our ecosystems and protects our rivers, which are so vital to the health and well-being of our communities as well. So as we're kind of thinking about rebooting on infrastructure in the 21st century, 
country, we have to really rethink the way that we address these problems on the ground. And that includes, you know, investing in our traditional communities and the ways in which they manage water, increasing the amount of funding that we spend on data and science and real-time management, and investing in much more resilient infrastructure that mimics the ecological and traditional ways that we manage water for the health of our rivers and our ecosystems. So when it comes to climate change, I feel like so many people in New Mexico, you know, the, the science is clear, we see the impacts, we know what's coming, um, but people often feel kind of helpless because so much action depends on policy changes that come from Congress or even the state legislature. And you've worked on Capitol Hill, you've been a state uh, Congresswoman, now a member of the federal delegation, and you've been such an expert and an advocate on water issues. But I, I just, I have to ask, you know, why do you think that climate change and water planning so often don't rise to the top of, of, you know, action and issues for elected officials? You know, I think it's one of the big questions of our time is that climate change is such a complex challenge. And, you know, as I talk to people across our community, I know that climate change is at the forefront of so many people's minds. I get asked about it every day. How do we address it? How do we deal with crisis in front of us? You know, is there still time? Are we going to be able to address the crisis? And I think that water in particular is so integral to every aspect of our life, our culture, our identity, our survival. Um, but the challenges around addressing our water needs are so complex and so intertwined with the law and infrastructure that sometimes it can feel almost too complicated to try to unpack it all. And so part of why I've spent my entire career working on water policy and water infrastructure questions is because we really need people who can get into the science and the policy and understand how all of those things are interconnected. So, you know, when I look at the policy space and what is in front of us in terms of addressing climate change, I think it's really helpful to break it down into sort of three aspects. You know, we have to address the climate crisis. We have to address our carbon footprint. We know that that's what we have to do to address the climate crisis itself. So that means reducing emissions and doing all of the things we can to fight it at a global level and at a local level. But we also have to address the resilience of our communities because climate change is already here. And of course, as you've reported, we are already seeing the signature of climate change especially in our water systems here in New Mexico, and we're already seeing reduced snowpack and impacts to our rivers. And so we can't ignore the reality that climate change is already impacting our communities. So we have to focus attention also on helping our communities get through the change that's already here. And then the third aspect of addressing climate change, which we, I think, in many ways have not really begun to tackle um, in a concerted way, is the economic challenge around climate change. And, you know, here in New Mexico is a state that has long been dependent on extractive industries, really thinking about how do we chart a course towards a more diversified economy looking forward that's more sustainable for our communities. And so 
I think, you know, sometimes the charge of addressing climate change and its connections to our communities is so huge, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. But when you can break it down into these different pieces, it makes it a little bit more manageable. And, um, you know, we just have to keep doing the work on all three fronts. Right. Well, thank you so much for your work on all three fronts. And it was great talking with you. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here with you today. We're going to pick up right where we left off there with Laura Paskus and Representative Melanie Stansberry. want to thank the representative for her time. Always good to catch up with our congressional delegation. But they left off there talking about climate change. We're going to pick that up now. Uh, Laura, again, Paskus, our environment reporter, she recently sat down in studio with Dave Gutzler, one of the state's premier climate scientists, to talk about what we know about the impacts of climate change in New Mexico to date, uh, what those uh, possible impacts into the future will be, what makes the science around climate change so tricky as it is constantly ever-changing, and again, how we get policymakers, lawmakers to really dig in on these issues so that we can make a difference on them moving forward. So once again, here's Laura Paskus from our land with UNM Professor David Gutzler. I'm Laura Paskus, and on our land this month, I check in with climate scientist Dave Gutzler. He just retired from the University of New Mexico, and we talk about the changes New Mexico is already experiencing and why it's so hard for policymakers and politicians to act on climate. Thanks, Dr. Gutzler, for joining me today. Oh, it's quite a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So you recently retired from UNM, um, where you worked with generations of students, have done decades of research. Um, you've spoken to the legislature, community groups, um, written reports for everyone from the New Mexico Interstate Stream Commission to the United Nations. And if I had to pick one person in the state who I think has done the most to educate us all, about climate change and its impacts. That would really be you. So thanks for being here with me today. Well, that, that's all very kind for you to say, um, and I appreciate it. Uh, from my perspective, I was trying to do my job. Um, and so taxpayers of New Mexico paid me for a quarter century to um, you know, hold this title called professor and, and try to do research and educate people, and that's, what we try to do. Mm -hmm. Let's start our conversation today with what we've already seen here in New Mexico. And correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe we're three degrees warmer than we were in the 1970s. Something along that. I mean, all, all these estimates are, are fairly rough. They're not precise, but that's a, a pretty good number. Um, so it's, it, and that's warmer enough for people to feel it. Right? I mean, people that have lived here for a few decades generally perceive if we, that, that it's, it's just not quite the same as it used to be. And we can point to all kinds of anecdotes about that. I, uh, I have a photo of my kids who were small when we moved here in the mid-90s. Um, bundled up like crazy, like they were when we lived in Boston, to go to the balloon fiesta. And you, 
you generally don't have to dress up like that anymore, um, more often than not. And, and so just things like that um, have really changed. And, and there are many more quantitative ways to show that as well. And what are some of those big impacts that we've really seen on the landscape in the past few decades that are related to this warming? Um, we see things like uh, increased intensity of wildfires, which also illustrates uh, an important point about climate change, which is that often the big impacts associated with climate change aren't, aren't standalone impacts, that climate change acts as an added stress on systems that are already stressed for other reasons, for example, because of forest management practices. Um, We've seen uh, uh, big droughts, which are of natural occurrence. Um, and since I started working here, a huge body of research has shown that huge droughts are endemic to the Southwest and have been for a thousand years. But now we think that the impacts of those droughts are more severe because the temperatures have warmed up. So um, drought that we're in, by some measures is not the most severe drought that we've seen in terms of precipitation deficits, yet we're setting records for low stream flows. Um, and that's because of this added effect of, of warmer temperatures. Can you lay out for us some of the future scenarios that you see in the data, whether that's you know things like related to stream flow in the Gila River or um, you know, kind of what some of our landscapes might look like and, and be like in the coming decades due to warming. The really big impacts that we can project with certainty, near certainty, are that the temperature ought to continue to warm up because we think that the principal driver of this trend in temperature is increasing greenhouse gases and they're still going up. And in the Southwest, in, in the arid climate and in the latitude zone that we're in, um, that is the warmer temperatures are associated with a general trend toward aridity, drier conditions. That means that our snow-fed rivers, like the Gila or the Rio Grande or the Pecos, will feel the effects of a reduced snowpack, which is another near certain projection associated with warmer temperatures. So we expect, on average, less water flowing down the major rivers and landscapes drying out with effects on uh, vegetation. And that can have effects on soil erosion and things like that. And so in thinking about, say, Albuquerque, where we are today, um, in what kind of time frame are we looking at for kind of maybe some big vegetative or temperature changes? Well, plenty of folks would say we're there. And, and, and so really what I'm describing is a continuation of, of trends that we already see in the data. What makes things a little bit hard in terms of both uh, picking out long-term trends in, in, in either landscapes or water metrics um, and also complicates uh, projections into the future is that these trends are superimposed on enormous natural fluctuations. So we go back and forth and back and forth between 
wet decades or multi-decadal periods and droughts that can also last for decades. And so it's hard to say that in a particular year in the future, things will look like this because in addition to these trends toward warmer conditions and more arid conditions, we have wet and, and dry spells that we think ought to continue into the future. Um, and, and so um, parsing the different time scales of variability and change are, are, are really tricky and, and, and will continue to be so. Mm -hmm. So um, I expect that we will still continue to have some wet years just due to natural variability and the challenge for policymakers is to not let down our guard and eliminate planning toward a drier and warmer future uh, because we just got some relief from natural variability that might be short-lived. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to say that climate scientists have kind of been put through the ringer over the past few decades from, you know, outright climate deniers um, to sort of people who maybe think like, yep, climate change is a problem, but um, just, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to go about my regular day. It's too much to think about. But I think it's been encouraging in the past few years the number of Americans who um, understand human-caused climate change is happening, it's rising, um, as well as the number of Americans who say that they trust climate scientists. And I'm curious from your perspective if you've seen that, that increased trust play out in terms of what we're willing to do in terms of policy or planning or, or making changes. I have perceived um, uh, much more confidence in the ability of the scientific community to lay out what's been happening and why and what is likely to happen in the future. <clears throat> I'm not convinced that that trust extends to what we might do about it, um, in part because we have to be honest when we make our projections that, that they extend into the future, farther into the future than most people are comfortable and certainly most policymakers are comfortable dealing with, um, and, and that they're fuzzy. And there's even less trust in, the, um, in our ability to transition toward a future associated where, where our energy is driven by renewables away from fossil fuels um, I, I think there's very little trust in how that's going to work, who's going to be an economic loser, um, and, and, and whether that will all work. I'm quite confident it will work eventually, but I'm not at all confident that we can meet any kind of short-term goals about reducing emissions or making a seamless transition to away from fossil fuels. Um, because that's hard and, and the path to get from our current energy economy to uh, one based on renewables is, is very fuzzy and people don't have any significant trust that we can do it without pain. So I always get surprised. I'm like, 
the governor just had her state of the state address and didn't mention climate change or water planning and I, I'm all surprised or another legislative session goes past and the legislature doesn't really take on water planning or climate in terms of mitigation or adaptation, but it sounds like maybe you're not very surprised. I'm not surprised because it's hard and, and there aren't easy solutions for water planning, for example. I, I totally applaud the ISC's uh, effort to put together a 50-year water plan, um, but putting one together and having it implemented with um, real changes associated with it that, that, that really address the risks that we face in terms of our water future is hard. It's politically really hard. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me too much anymore when um, uh, elected officials who need to face voters in the near term are somewhat reluctant to put real change into place in terms of policy that people think is associated with something might might happen in the long term. Mm -hmm. This is quickly turning into the Laura Pasca show, but that's because she does such great work. We are doing regular Facebook Lives with Laura. Try to do that each week, usually Tuesdays around lunchtime, 11.30 or noon. And so we encourage you to go follow and like the Our Land New Mexico Facebook page so you can keep up with all of that. You can also do that at the Our Land YouTube page. But this past week, uh, we followed up on a segment we did uh, several months ago, well, probably six to eight months ago now, really looking at the challenges faced by federal wildland firefighters. Uh, you may remember that segment, and we'll put a link in the description here so you can watch that if you didn't catch it the first time. Um, but I think it would shock a lot of people to realize that a lot of these jobs, first of all, are seasonal. They're not even year-round, and that means when you're not working, health benefits and things like that go away, even though fire seasons are longer and longer each and every year. And starting salaries for some of these jobs, $15 an hour. And in the job market we know we're facing now, these things just aren't tenable. There are measures in the works to try to change some of these and the way we think about these wildland firefighters. And so we once again caught up with a former wildland firefighter, Jonathan Golden. We talked to him before in that earlier interview along with a couple other folks, but wanted to catch up with him again, especially about job vacancies and how we look headed into what will no doubt be another hectic fire season. But again, just to drive this point home, think about what we saw in Colorado just about a month ago in Boulder County. These are not fires in the dead of summer anymore. They can happen anytime and can be truly, truly devastating. That's why making sure we have enough wildland firefighters uh, and that we're doing all we can to support them is so, so important. So really encourage you to give this interview a listen and no doubt we will keep track of how this thing, these things progress moving forward. So here again, Laura Paskus, our environment correspondent, and Jonathan Golden. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. 
So for those of you tuning in, Jonathan Golden is a former wildland firefighter who I um, interviewed last year. We talked about a whole slew of challenges that federal wildland firefighters face. Um, and so we're going to kind of catch up on that conversation from last fall. But Jonathan, I was wondering if you could kind of give us kind of the overview for people who maybe didn't see that interview last year of some of the the big challenges that wildland firefighters face that the rest of us probably don't know about. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me back. I really appreciate it. And um, <clears throat> I think a lot of the things that the firefighters face, the challenges that they face is uh, just a, a clear appreciation and understanding um, by the public at large of what our lives are like um, and what we go through, um, not only on a day-to-day -day basis, like while we're on the line, the fire line, um, you know, largely invisible from the from the public, um, but just the accumulative, you know, stress that develops over the the shifts, the weeks, the months, the years um, of doing the job, and I, you know, we we got to uncover some of that when we discussed this last uh, summer, like the mental health issues, um, the housing insecurity issues, especially at duty stations. Um, around the country, um, <clears throat> the, the, you know, the, when we talk comparatively, uh, the low pay for the job, um, and, you know, the, uh, the health issues besides mental health, the physical health, um, what's happening with our respiratory system and our heart, our bones, everything like that. And so there is just a lot that people don't understand. I think, you know, they, they see fire, they see tankers dropping retardant or helicopters dropping water, but um, they really don't understand that, uh, you know, on the ground, uh, there's a wildland firefighter uh, with a radio and a pack um, in the smoke, in the heat, in the flame, uh, coordinating all of that stuff. And that's just one very small piece of it, really. Yeah, I feel like that conversation last year really opened my eyes to so many things that I didn't understand. You know, as an environment reporter, I've been reporting pretty consistently on how warmer temperatures in combination with um, past forest management practices have really combined to drive these bigger hotter wildfires and you know our lengthening wildfire season but our conversation last year opened my eyes so much to some of the challenges that this um, workforce deals with during fire season and outside of fire season and I'm curious um, you know one of the things that we spoke about last year right about the time we did that interview the forest service was had just raised pay, I think, to $15 an hour, um, which really seems really low given the risks that people face. But I'm curious if you have a sense of what staffing looks like for the coming fire season, or if we know that yet. I think the early indications are that we're still coming up woefully short um, in recruiting talent to come and do this job. It's a hard job. Uh, yes, the administration implemented a, you know, a minimum wage of $15 an hour uh, for wildland firefighters. Um, and then um, the Budget and Infrastructure Act was passed, um, which sought to uh, increase salaries by either $20,000 or 50%, whichever was less for remaining 
amount of the workforce, I think, up to the GS9 level. And that was supposed to be implemented on October 1st. Um, to my best uh, knowledge, uh, speaking with friends across the country that are still um, working for the federal agencies that are, are under GS9, they still haven't received that money. Um, and that's really weighing on them. And that's really actually contributing for people to decide to just walk away altogether, um, right? There's uh, there's other agencies or uh, entities that they can work for where uh, they are valued. Um, and not saying that they're not valued, um, you know, everybody that I've ever worked for and either the Department of Interior Agency or Forest Service has been openly appreciative for the work that we've done. But sometimes, you know, thanks doesn't fill up the bank account and put food on the table, um, pay for health care, um, raise a family, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think that um, had those raises come when they should have come, uh, we might be seeing a little bit of a different story. But you know, right now it's it's looking pretty bleak for um, retention and recruitment in um, a lot of the areas around the country. So that, you know, I think that. Again, I think the public just doesn't have a sense of that. You know, when we, you know, here in New Mexico, when we have wildfires, um, you know, we just assume that people are able to show up and fight these fires. And, you know, you talk about appreciation, you know, whenever we have a, a wildfire, you know, people in our communities, we always want to know, like, how do we support the firefighters who are there in the community? People want to drop off water, bring food and, you know, put up signs. But it sounds like there's some some deeper ways that we as as voters, as, as just people um, can better show our appreciation. I'm curious what what can be done at this point. I think from my perspective, what could be done is that we've seen a lot of really good like headlines and top line nuggets from the administration about, hey, this is what the Infrastructure Act is, is supposed to do. Um, but it's kind of coming up short on details. Um, they're not really setting out a plan in place. Um, or, and if they are, um, I don't think it's being communicated very well to the folks on the ground. Um, as to what they can expect and how that impacts them. And then also like the communities at large that you know are adjacent to uh, public lands or are in the WUI, um, <clears throat> they should know what to expect. And, and really, I, honestly, I, I think when you talk about how can people continue to show their support, um, get your communities involved, get your, you know, your county commissioners, your local government, and, and make sure that they know that it's an issue. Like, for example, there's grant money that's available in the Infrastructure Act um, to, um, to communities that are at risk from wildfire, which is a lot of communities in New Mexico. But, you know, there are some certain caveats, um, whether or not their community has a wildland uh, wildfire protection plan in place, uh, whether or not their community has met the, the satisfactory needs for roofing material that is non-combustible. And if they have, and they have, you know, clearly articulated a need for uh, wildfire suppression or fuels treatment in their protection plans, then they're uh, open and available to receive that grant money that was made available, you know, uh, from Congress passing the Infrastructure Act. But I think that um, fire, as we have seen in Denton, Montana and Boulder County is, and of course, California is a year round destructive event. And we can't keep our eye off that. Um, 
I know that my colleagues that are still doing it, um, you know, if they're not uh, at home right now, they're are responding to wildfires. They're they're doing prescribed fire in the south, um, which has a huge prescribed fire program, and um, <clears throat> so they're they're in it twenty four seven, almost three sixty five. So it sounds like there are things that individuals and communities can do to kind of protect themselves from. Um, certain conditions and certain fires. And we'll put those resources in our comments. Um, and I don't wanna be alarmist, but what does it potentially mean for communities in the West if there isn't the federal workforce that is required? You're still gonna have a local or state jurisdiction show up. And then you'll probably still have a federal component it just means that the response times are going to lag um, really and, and truly um, that's kind of, that's kind of the difference maker, right? Um, you're going to, somebody's going to pick up the phone and call 911 and they're going to wonder where these resources are. Um, and that's just kind of, in my mind, I, I feel like that's, that's a little bit unacceptable. Uh, we are expecting and accustomed to, emergency services showing up promptly. Um, and if they're in proximity, they will. But if we continue to have a retention issue and a recruitment issue, it's really gonna limit um, our national capacity to address uh, what's turning to be a, a growing crisis, not just in the West. And then in terms of what, you know, so we're kind of talking a big picture of, of how these workforce issues can affect communities and landscapes, but what about the strain that's on the workforce that is there? Like, what are some of the resources, what are some of the problems and what are some of the resources? Well, I mean, so in New Mexico, for example, they still have dozens of uh, vacancies or no fills at, you know, the GS six to GS nine position. And so you're, <laughs> you're shouldering, the existing workforce with a, a larger workload, right? And, you know, it, it puts constraints on them and, and it puts constraints on, you know, certain um, ability or capability or capacity to respond to these emergencies. And, you know, if we can't, if we can't address that, um, you know, we're, and we continue to do more with less, I mean, it's, it's going to be, pretty, pretty telling when every fire that starts, and I don't want to say every fire, but when a lot of fires that start <clears throat> turn into very large fires that consume not only a ton of natural resources, but communities. And, you know, I, I hope not, but life as well. Mm -hmm. So has there, we, we talked a little bit about the infrastructure bill in Congress. Has there been interest from, um, you know, Western lawmakers to address some of these issues, either for the workforce themselves, for firefighters themselves, or for communities? Yeah, um, I feel like the, the New Mexico uh, Senate delegation has been uh, really good and engaged on these issues. They understand uh, the values at risk and what's at stake. Um, and, it, and it's not just them. I mean, it's it's I think lawmakers across the West um, are very clear-eyed about a need to address this. Uh, I think what happens though is there's disagreement on, you know, what what part do we do first, right? So, 
some lawmakers want to see like a um, just a whole scale um, approach to uh, fuels reduction and and get rid of NEPA. Well, not get rid of NEPA, but uh, let's just say like you know uh, put NEPA aside to get as much done as we can. Um, but you know, I, there are other lawmakers that are very people focused too because who are who are doing the work? It's people. Uh, people are the ones doing the work and we need to make sure that we have the people to do the work that we can realistically achieve the the land management objectives that the, the land management agencies are setting out for us to do. So we also spoke last year about um, a federal firefighter who was from um, Montana, Wyoming, um, a smoke jumper who died as a result of injuries sustained on a fire here in New Mexico. And, you know, I think when we think of federal workers, we think of, you know, things like health insurance. And, uh, you know, I was totally under the mistaken impression that people's families would be taken care of when they, you know, are, are, are essentially killed in the line of duty. Um, and I remember there was a GoFundMe campaign for Tim and somebody on our social media when we were promoting this um, mentioned Tim's Act. Are you familiar with that legislation? Could you give us a little update on that? Yeah, so Tim's Act, um, you know, is the product of the unfortunate tragedy of what happened to Tim Hart. Um, in New Mexico. Um, yeah, he was a smoke jumper. And um, we, the people working on Tim's act, um, you know, really hats off to Michelle Hart, Tim's um, spouse, uh, for really kind of spearheading and being the champion of this bill. Um, you know, it, it sets to, you know, define what right looks like for the wildland fire community. I mean, it's essentially what you have right now is, um, land management employees doing fire department work for land management wages, right? Um, I don't, you'd be hard pressed to find uh, fire departments that pay as low as the land management agencies um, for the work that's being asked of them. And it really is just a, a culmination of everything that she witnessed her husband go through, uh, sleeping in his truck in Grangeville, Idaho, because there was no housing available and he had to pay to like rent, you know, space there. And that was a 13 hour drive away from their home, in Cody, Wyoming, um, you know, uh, mental health leave, because, you know, let's face it, like the stress that compounds, um, we need to be able to take a break, take a pause. Um, and that's really hard. Uh, that's really hard to do in the middle of the season when your crew is depending on you, the communities are depending on you to perform, go, go, go. Um, so, uh, we were able to get uh, Tim's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Tim's Act introduced in the House. Um, Congressman Jonah Goose um, uh, led this effort, uh, has received bipartisan support um, in the House. Um, and there is uh, a Senate companion piece in the works right now um, that we know of. Uh, from what I understand, it does have bipartisan uh, support. However, um, we just need to make sure that those authors of Tim's Act in the Senate are paying attention to what's happening on the ground. They're hearing about, you know, what the perspective is from those that this is meant to impact because there is a disconnect from what happens on the ground and what, you know, the Washington office or regional foresters office uh, tell folks uh, when they provide technical feedback for these uh, legislative pieces. And that's very critical. 
uh, we can't we can't divorce those two uh, the boots on the ground uh, from the, the lawmakers because they need to know they need to hear you know I think raw and um, get get the truth of what is actually needed in order to retain and recruit uh, if we're able to get around this uh, this you know emergency situation that happens every summer around the west right well so we will drop some resources into the comments for people if you were watching this or listening to this and you want to share your story i'll drop my email um, in the comments as well and jonathan thank you so much um, for your continued work and for talking to me about these important issues thank you i appreciate it thanks That's going to do it for this episode. Again, a reminder, tomorrow night, you've heard us talk about this in the last couple episodes, but we are so excited to bring you a new series here at New Mexico PBS, a digital series called Indigenous, where we celebrate indigenous innovation, science, technology. You can uh, watch episode one tomorrow. It premieres at 6 p.m. and then there'll be new episodes every other Tuesday. Our host is the fantabulous Lee Francis IV. He is the self-proclaimed indigener, the man behind Red Planet Comics and the Indigenous Comic-Con. He is just a terrific person to head this up. He wrote all the episodes as well. A big shout out to Anthony Rodriguez, who had the idea for the show and really made it happen. The whole crew at Modal Soul Creative here in Albuquerque. Great production crew that just helped us make this wonderful series. We can't wait for you to enjoy. And if you're interested, if you're piqued, you need to make sure you subscribe to the NMPBS YouTube channel. That's where you will get the new episodes. And if you subscribe, then you'll get those notices so you know when new ones release. Don't have to worry about it again after that. But with that, we'll leave you and be ready to join you again coming up Friday with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy.